You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are thrilled today to be joined by the social action artist, Suzanne Brennan Furstenberg, based in Bethesda, Maryland. Suzanne, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Steve, for having me. Now, the reason we're bringing Suzanne on is she is the person that that created the project, In America, How Could This Happen?, the art installation that ran from October 23rd to November 30th, 267,080 tiny white flags, assembled on the parade ground up on Capitol Hill, opposite RFK Stadium and opposite the Washington, D.C. National Guard Armory. This was a profound effort. It was one that Suzanne spearheaded. It was her creation. We are going to talk a little bit about the genesis of this. We're going to talk about the messages and the experiences that she wanted to create for those who came and participated and witnessed this talk about the partnerships, how this effort is being preserved, and whether it might inspire others. So let's let's start, Suzanne. Tell us a little bit about yourself as an artist, and how did you as a person come to this idea? What was the genesis of this idea? First, to describe myself as an artist is kind of hard because I lived a completely different life before this doing new product development in the pharmaceutical industry. I worked for Capitol Hill, on Capitol Hill for a while. Uh, I didn't even discover that I was an artist until age 50. So I bring a lot of life experience to my art, but also a sense of urgency. I have a lot to say with my art, and so I want to tackle the big issues. And when the pandemic began, I was just so unnerved by the devaluation of life. First, it was Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor in Texas, when he intimated in March that the elderly should be willing to accept the risk of this virus for the economy. That just felt so unacceptable to me. I've been a hospice volunteer for 25 years, and the devaluation of any life is is just unacceptable. Then another thing happened to really highlight the devaluation of life that was happening. And that ha- that was the first week in May. I was listening to a CNN report that studies had shown that communities of color were being disproportionately affected by this. And within days, there was the president saying that he had had enough of being a worrier about the virus and he wanted to be a cheerleader for the economy. And I thought, if that isn't explicit racism, that's implicit bias. Neither one is okay. So I knew I wanted to use my art to speak to the value of all lives that were being lost. But then in August, when I read a Washington Post headline that said that 170,000 lives was just a statistic, a death statistic, I became enraged. I thought, I've got to do something to help people understand the size of the problem. When a number gets so big that people can't understand it, art can step in to translate. And that's what I decided to do. Thank you so much. So you come to that moment of action. 
tell us how you then translated that into this project of In America, How Could This Happen, that resulted in 267,080 flags being installed in our neighborhood here on Capitol Hill. Right. The first place I needed to start was figuring out how to translate the large number into visual reality, how to materialize the number. So I knew I had to create, at that point, it was 170,000, but I knew the number would climb dramatically. I needed to make it physical. I needed to make it experiential. So I thought about all sorts of things, wind chimes and, and such, but flags just were the obvious answer because in the wind, they make sound. They are beautiful. They're evocative and they have a life to them. But also I thought if I use white flags, people can also write on them. So I arrived at the concept of flags and then had to find space. I contacted the office of the mayor of DC and they had suggested a few places. When I toured the DC armory parade grounds, uh, I, I fell in love with the site. It had to happen there for several reasons. There was metro access. There was parking. There was a contiguous reverential space that could house the flags and do them honor. And people could tour the art without even leaving the comfort of their cars if they felt insecure in being around other people. So it was the perfect space. And it just took me a few months to gain their permission to use it. But I am very grateful that they did so. And then you brought in a few partners to help you move things along. Who who was most helpful? Oh, my God. As, a, as an artist, I really did need help, especially in, in planting the flags. So I called Rupert Landscaping and talked with a guy there, Kyle Meisner. And I said to Kyle, Kyle, I need to learn how to plant flags in an array because I want this art installation to be evocative of Arlington Cemetery. So I want to plant in, in visual rows. How do you do that? And he said, well, Suzanne, let me tie in our designer. And I thought, uh, on my budget, can you just tell me how to do it? And I'll, and I'll, I'll do it myself because I knew I couldn't afford a large scale design and implementation plan. And Kyle said, you know, Suzanne, don't worry. We've got this. And boy, did they have it. They not only gave me the design support necessary to figure out how to house hundreds of thousands of flags on this particular space. They also dedicated over 400 man hours to planting the central array of flags, which was comprised of 165,000. So without Rupert Landscaping, I would still be there planting flags today. That's wonderful. And tell me, you told me when I first met you, you talked about placing an order for a quarter of a million tiny flags, which I found kind of an astonishing story. Like, I just can't imagine picking up the phone or going online and filing an order for a quarter of a million tiny flags. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't easy because I needed to do this in a timely fashion. I was getting squeezed on time because I still hadn't gotten an okay, but I needed to get flags. I couldn't buy them from China. I didn't want an American flag. I finally settled on a white engineering marking flag. And luckily, I found a distributor and a manufacturer who, when I ordered the flags on October 1st, they were very gracious and created them within 10 days. So I was lucky to have the contacts to get the flags quickly. And I will admit, I ordered them before I got permission to to do the installation just because I was determined to make it happen one way or the other. Suzanne, thanks for being with us today. I mean, this is such an 
amazing story. You know, for our, our listeners, you know, you can view these images of Suzanne's incredible public art installation on Instagram. National Geographic did an incredible package on it. You can also see it at Suzanne Furstenberg's website, which is, I believe, SuzanneVerstenberg.com. And, you know, when I look at this video and I look at these pictures and the site at which it's on, this is hallowed ground. You know, for me, I grew up in the, in the DC metropolitan area and got to see some Redskin games at, you know, now they're called the Washington football team. But back when I was growing up, they were the, the Washington Redskins. And I got to see them play a couple times at RFK. But more importantly for me, I got to see the Grateful Dead play at RFK. And you can see, you know, and Suzanne and Steve can see in my background, I've got a lot of, you know, memorabilia and, and art about the Grateful Dead. I'm wearing a Grateful Dead t-shirt and the Grateful Dead were never political, but they were always, their art always spoke to community and still does to this day. They're on the third generation of fans. I'm actually writing a book about it, as many of our listeners know. What have you heard from people about this installation that speaks to them? What, what have people told you? when they've come and visited this? What has been the experience? I mean, because everybody, I think you, nobody can look at this and not be overwhelmed, but what are some of the things that you've heard? Oh, Andrew, first of all, I have to say, you would not be the first deadhead to remark about the uh, proximity to RFK. And, and many people came up to me and said they had not visited the DC Armory grounds since they'd been to a concert at RFK. I think the first thing I was overwhelmed by when people would ask me, about the art or when they would come and share their impressions, people were taken aback by the beauty. Very seldom do people ever get to see a quarter of a million flags rippling in the wind. But then in the very same breath, they would apologize for being caught up in the beauty because the beauty represented something so horrifying. And, and that was, to me, the most overwhelming issue to create beautiful art that represents something so sad and difficult is is um, unusual. What I was surprised about was the amount of appreciation that was expressed to me. I knew people would bring their anger o over the fact that this had happened, that the pandemic response had been so poorly organized. Um, and I knew that people would bring their grief. This was part of the art was to honor those whom we'd lost. I didn't realize that people would bring their appreciation. Almost everyone who talked with me at the art installation each day when I was there said, thank you so much for doing this. People have brought to this their anger and they've brought to this their grief. And those are understandable reactions. What I was kind of surprised by was all the appreciation. These are deaths that have happened in private. They've happened in isolation. And people have been so appreciative that this has been acknowledged, not only individual deaths, but also our generalized loss. A lot of people who came to the art hadn't lost loved ones, but they'd lost jobs or income opportunities or educational opportunities. And they just wanted a place to be, to bring their grief, their sadness, their loss, and to see others doing the same thing. Suzanne, when you were putting this together, did you consciously have in your mind that you were going to create this participatory experience, this communal, communal experience, and that you were creating consciously a space outdoors for people to mourn those that they've lost? Yes, that was part of the design because people in mourning need an activity. 
And when people are mourning, doing an activity helps that grief process. Men used to build caskets. People today still bake and cook and bring baked goods and, and food to families in mourning. We are a society that does things in mourning. And when we're in isolation, that's harder to do. So by coming to plant flags and to help me plant flags for other people, it gave folks an activity. I knew from the start that I wanted this to be participatory because it is action in grief is an important process. How many people actually visited the site? Do you have enough? I've been, I came by a dozen times. There were always people arriving and, and solemnly witnessing and circulating. How many people do you think came by in the course of those, of the installation? I would guess thousands. It's impossible to tell because I was only there from mid to late morning until sunset each day. And people would come at night too, or early in the morning. But thousands of people came. And the visual of this will follow this story into history. That's one of the things that surprised me was the extent to which I was creating a visual memory that will last and be attached to this as the story of the, the pandemic moves on into this history books. So how will this be preserved? Representatives of the Smithsonian have already visited the art and counseled me on how to preserve the flags. And the Smithsonian will be taking some of the flags for their permanent collection as may some other museums as well. So I'm really gratified by that aspect, that parts of this installation will be preserved for perpetuity. And you did a lot of photo documentation of it, right? You must, there must be plenty of beautiful photographs for a future exhibit, right? One of the things we did, which I'm really happy we thought about in advance, was we set up two webcams. So there is time-lapse photography showing the installation, the visitation, and the deinstallation, which is pretty cool. I think one of the things that has struck me, though, is that people call this memorial. And they've talked about the Vietnam Memorial and the AIDS quilt. When people talk about this as a memorial, it makes me wonder if it really is, because we're still in the midst of it. It's hard to memorialize something that, that you're still in the midst of. Keeping that in mind, I think one of my messages that I want to share with people is that we have to remember that this is an extraordinary moment in time. We're in the midst of this crisis, one of the greatest mass casualty events of our lifetimes, and us trying desperately to seek normalcy might not be the best reaction to it. Suzanne, I just want to, on that, I want to make one point, which is the author, John Barry, who did a podcast with us, who wrote the, the classic study of the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, titled The Great Influenza. In that volume, which talks about the loss of 670,000 Americans to that pandemic 102 years ago, he talks about how there is only in America one single memorial dedicated to the victims, 670,000 dead from that, and trying to explain that. And, you know, it was a sense of, I think, as it ended, a sense of shame and sorrow and a desire to turn back to resume some sort of normal life. 
So I just mentioned that because it seems to me this, what you've done is one of the earliest efforts at really pushing back against that and coming up with something that does capture the moment, even in the midst of this ongoing crisis. Having that billboard at the front with the, the numbers changing every day was also brilliant because it was a clock in effect. And every day you came and it forced you to realize that the clock had not stopped. It was moving very fast. Say a bit about that. Changing those numbers on the front of that billboard was the toughest part of every day of mine because when the numbers changed, that marked it as reality. It was the same thing that I saw when a person would write a name on a flag. That's when the tears would flow because when that name was written on that flag, it became a reality. The one thing that I don't want to become a reality or to have in perpetuity is what caused this in the first place. I don't want this to be thought of as a memorial, but more as an awakening because patriotism today in the U.S. is really, it seems to be about wrapping oneself in the American flag and demanding one's individual rights. And I think if nothing else, I hope this art installation says to people, wow, we are all in this together and we have to rethink what it means to be an American. Instead of focusing on ourselves, it's time to flip our cameras and focus on each other and work to the common good. This pandemic shows our vulnerabilities. It shows our vulnerabilities in our federalist structure and it shows the importance of leadership. It shows that being an American can't be just fighting for one's individual rights, but it's time to rethink that and work to the common good. The next pandemic, global warming or climate crisis, we have to get better in our response. And part of that better is flipping our cameras and looking out for the common good. You were starting to talk about normalcy for a minute there. And I think that's a really important point. You know, we don't want to normalize the fact that people are dying, you know, almost 3,000 a day now, which is, you know, we're having a 9-11 event every day. How do you think as Americans, we grapple with that now? And do you plan to grapple with that going forward with your art? Yeah, this is something we cannot normalize. Our response to this has to be considered from a policy standpoint and has to be used as an important lesson in what not to do because this is not normal and we can't accept it. That was one of the reasons I created this art in the first place, was to show how unnormal it really is. One of the most touching moments of the whole art exhibit was when a little three, four-year-old girl was traipsing behind her mother saying, Mommy, Mommy, there's too many flags. Mommy, there's too many flags. That little girl, she had no idea the grief that was embodied in those flags, but she certainly understood it viscerally she knew that something was not right and maybe it's time for us to take a pause and to listen to the kids because they know that this is not right they sure do and in a lot of ways they're bearing the brunt of this in ways that a lot of us can't even understand because this is going to be with them you know for their whole life this is a life-changing event for all of us and you know just like we've had to change our life after 9/11 their lives are going to change forever after this so as an artist how do you think about your art 
going forward to continue to deal with this issue and how it affects people, you know, going forward? Andrew, I am so glad that you brought up 9-11 because if you think about it, we never did have a national or even a statewide response to the psychological injury that happened. We we focused on the politics surrounding 9-11, but we have a whole generation of kids that was truly psychologically destabilized by that event, and we never had any national response to the psychological injury. This, too, will have the same lasting effect on a generation, particularly if we don't stop and address the psychological damage. The one thing that surprises me is when I hear people say, oh, you know, we have to get back to normal as soon as possible because these kids have lost a whole year. They've been so set back. If we gave up for a moment our desperate need for normalcy and accepted this for what it is, this is a pause. My art was meant to be a pause. And this whole pandemic should give us an opportunity to stop. And instead of working frantically to normalize things, to say, wow, we do have more time with our kids. We can get to know them as individuals. We can make something of this that can make us stronger. And I think from a policy standpoint and a leadership standpoint, instead of just lamenting all the bad that has happened, we should take this as a moment to reconceptualize what we've learned from it. It's interesting how you think about this. You think a lot more about people than you do about the art. And that's really refreshing because, you know, a lot of people think about the art more than the people. You know, some of my favorite writers, they always say they don't write about the music or they don't write about the art. They write about the people who make art or they write about the people who make music. It seems to me you make art about people and you make art about the experiences that people are going through. And I think part of that is because I was first a person out in the business world and my hospice experience, and then I became an artist. And so really my focus as an individual is first on people and then on the art. But also, man, we're, in a, we're living in an age where words go unheard. People are not listening. And art has to do the heavy lifting now. I hope that this art installation show that it can, that it adds to the evidence that art is important, especially in times like this. And I look forward to my next body of work, which will be an outgrowth of this. Suzanne, two things. One, I want to mention that Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen came into play here. And as you've explained, people came forward, they wanted to contribute. They wanted to give back to you. I wanted you to say a few words about how you brought Jose Andres in in order to try and answer that appeal to people. And secondly, I wanted to ask you, how do you think this experience, this installation is going to inspire people to do other things? So first question is, tell us a bit about how Jose Andres came into the picture. During the first days of this installation, people were so moved and so surprised that it had suddenly appeared in their neighborhood, for instance, that they would ask me if they could contribute and they, they would be reaching into their pockets. As an artist, I felt a bit uncomfortable about that. I really wanted their good intentions to be translated into direct care and support for other people. And so immediately the idea of Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen came to mind, knowing that the, in, the pandemic was just going to keep getting worse month by month as we move from the fall into the winter. And knowing that food insecurity is such an issue 
particularly for isolated elderly or children who can't get to school for their subsidized meal, which might be their only good meal of the day. Food insecurity is a huge issue. And so I wanted people's good intentions to be channeled straight to that cause. And Jose Andres and his staff were wonderful. They came to the installation and they partnered with us to ensure that more people can be fed this winter. Thank you. And how much do you expect this to inspire others? You know, what I want the people to learn from this is that others care. One of my most poignant moments was when a woman came to me and said, Suzanne, thank you for doing this because, because it shows that somebody else out there cares. Have we gotten to be such an uncaring society that, that people don't anticipate that or expect it? I was surprised by that response, but it taught me that acts of kindness and caring, especially by strangers, have immense value right now. It gets us out of our own cocoons, out of our own worlds, and makes us realize that we really are all in this together. What gives you the most hope for the future? Vaccine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, us too. <laughs> What gives me the most hope? I think if I think every time people stop talking about numbers and start talking about individuals, that gives me hope. Every time that people focus on the fact that we are interdependent and so we need to be looking out for each other. Like if you think about it, our interdependence almost requires us to take care of each other. And to look out for each other's good, right? <laughs> because because it is in our self-interest. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for taking the time today to share all of these thoughts. It's really inspiring. And, you know, we're all in your debt for doing this. And I hope we see more of this. I think that it does, it will inspire others. I certainly hope it will. And we wish you all the best in caring for it. I know you're not done. Uh, with this concept. And so we are sitting on the edge of our seats to see what the next act may look like. So keep us in mind and uh, have a wonderful holiday. I hope you get some rest. It didn't look to me during this installation that you were getting a whole lot of rest. And congratulations. Uh, this is a marvelous and inspired project. Thank you so much, Steve. Andrew, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. <laughs>